And we're uh, finally getting into chapter 6 today. So I'd invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn there to chapter 6. We do want to uh, read that, and, and I'm going to put it on the screen. But again, I'd encourage you to use your Bibles. It might be a little different. I'm reading from the ESV. Look how it reads in chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in the secret, and your Father who sees in secret will will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for, for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, one of the things that Jesus is trying to do in this sermon is that he's inviting the crowd and specifically his disciples to a new way of understanding what righteousness is all about. And I believe that as we move more and more toward this kind of understanding, that it's attractive to the world. But I want to begin by putting up another verse, a previous one that he had stated. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. This applies a bit to us today. He says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus is creating a contrast, and he's redefining what real righteousness is all about, and he's challenging their definition of what righteousness is. He's challenging the beliefs of people, what it means to know God and to follow God, to love God. But I want to put up uh, this first or the last verse in chapter 5 with it. Look at how we ended last week, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect. See, don't do it like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious group. I want you to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see the connection there. There's kind of the opposite of don't be like this, but be like this. Now, I think we look at that. And we struggle with it, and we hear those words to be perfect like your father is perfect, and if you have to admit, I think it's a bit discouraging. You walk through the week, and I see how I fail to love, and even some of the other behaviors that we've looked at over the last month or so, and I think the temptation is to go, never can do it. My life will never change. And so we kind of moved to this place where we just throw up our hands in the air and go, okay, I'm just going to live a life of mediocrity. I'll just walk through life and not think about these things. But I think we got to just hang on to this issue is that Jesus knows that a new righteousness is not based on our effort. He wants us to know and understand we really can't do this kind of righteousness on our own. 
See, I can wake up tomorrow and, and I can go, okay, I'm, today I'm just going to live completely different. I'm not going to sin. I'm going to walk through. I'm going to concentrate on being like my Heavenly Father and my, I'm just going to will myself to some kind of change. And, and you go, no. Jesus knows it's not going to work. So be perfect. How do you get there? How do you move to that new type of righteousness? Now, it's interesting as we move from the end of chapter 5 to the chapter 6 here, um, that the, the people who put in verses here notice the change. By the way, okay, Matthew didn't put in chapter and verse, as you probably know. Some credit it to a guy by the name of Stephen Langton, an England archbishop, and somewhere around 1225 A.D., somewhere in there, they started putting in chapters and verses. And got it kind of picked up from there. But they understood something, that there was a subtle shift from chapter 5 to chapter 6. And he makes this shift by giving them a warning. Look at it, 6 verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That word, beware, it's a very strong word. In its definition, it means to devote thought, effort toward. See, disciples, this is about understanding righteousness, but you've got to think about these things. Now, let me just throw out to you the first point here, the first truth that I believe that, God, that uh, Jesus is communicating. Truth number one, if you're following in the outline there in the, in the bulletin, I said it this way. Why we do what we do matters to God. Our motives matter. And he gives two illustrations here. One in terms of giving to the poor and the other is prayer. And it's a warning because we can slide. There's almost a temptation that, that we can move toward. Look at verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Now, if you don't know, this is kind of where we get that phrase, toot your own horn. Probably heard of that. But look at the illustration in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. See, he uses prayer and giving and dealing with this, this issue of motives, of why we do what we do. But, but here's where I, I need to remind us. We've got, we got to be careful because I think this isn't just a call to turn inward and be completely introspective and kind of kind of wallow in, oh, I failed again as to why I did what I did. Jesus is, as he wants us to look at the motives, his goal is righteousness. It's not just to look at our motives. The, the reason that we look at our motives is because he wants us to move toward righteousness. And he understands that the heart needs to be changed. But I've got to go down a subtle path here just to remind you of one piece here. You notice the second word in verse 2. It's when he uses the word when. When you give. It doesn't say if you are giving. 
So what's he challenging here? It's the idea that he's not letting this command to give just slide by the wayside. I think we forget when you think of a culture back then, when you think of poor people, they didn't have a welfare system. They didn't have food stamps. They didn't have a government really looking out for the poor like we do today. And so the expectation was God's people were supposed to help take care of the poor. And that he didn't dismiss this expectation, by the way. Matter of fact, I want to see how important it is. I want to put up Proverbs 21.13. We actually read Deuteronomy 15 last week, which applies to us. And look how it reads. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. See, over and over in the scriptures, this idea of dealing with the poor, we were to be, the, the, God's people was supposed to be an extension of God helping other people. So he's leaving that expectation in place. But here's where i got to get it more, more theological on you and kind of drill down. And I'll, one of the goals that I have over the years uh, here being at the church the last couple years is to change your definition a bit on sin. I'll admit that right up front. And I, I want us to understand that sin needs to go beyond just certain actions that we do, the outward behaviors that we live at sometimes, for example, lying and cheating and stealing. I go, sin is much broader than that. And, and where I've been trying to go is that I want us to embrace sin in terms of autonomy. Self-rule, independence, self-love. Because when you take those definitions, understand it's oftentimes connected to our motives. So when we wallow in self-love or we're self-ruling, it oftentimes plays out in why we do what we do. But understand again, Jesus expected them to give, and I, but I think of the attitude, for example, think of the deeper attitude when, in the heart where I go, I will never give. I don't really care about the poor. What if we go there? See, in our minds, we can come back and go, I've never killed anybody. I've never, I'm not doing all of these outward moral sins. But we can have an attitude that says, I don't care about the poor. And, and functionally, what we can do is we can become tight-fisted with our money. And that's an attitude but what is it? What's the attitude? What's maybe the broader understanding of being tight-fisted? It's, it might be this. One is just telling God, God, this is my money. Stay out of it. This is what. This is mine. And what happens is that kind of an attitude will never be a conduit of God's grace and love, but it's an attitude of selfishness that really is saying, I want to be independent from God. God, I don't want you touching my stuff, my money. And I would say that kind of attitude, it's not a great spot to be in, spiritually speaking. See, the failure and the unwillingness to give, one is trapped in selfishness. But Jesus says giving is the norm. But he's also giving a warning here. And it's almost the opposite of being tight-fisted. He says when people give, they're giving where they're wanting something as they give. 
And, and he's using giving and praying in that context. But let me go back to the definition of sin. Again, sin as kind of a type of relational autonomy. That the emphasis that life is supposed to be about me. And, and understand where this comes from. I want to put a passage on the screen. If it's a passage, you, if you've never marked it in your Bibles, you need to have it in your Bibles, okay? Isaiah chapter 14. It is a picture of the first sin in all of creation before Adam and Eve sinned. I know I've had this on the screen before a long time ago, but again, just to review it. Isaiah 14, look at how it reads the first few verses. Again, there's kind of a dualism here. It's talking about the king of Babylon, but almost all scholars would agree this is a picture of what happened as Satan fell. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. See, somewhere God, as he created even the angels beyond the people, he gave Satan the freedom to choose either worship me or you can choose to walk away. And you know that Satan walked away and he chose a different path. But here's what happened to Satan. What was going on in his heart. Look at how it reads in verse 13. You said in your heart, this is Satan saying, I will ascend to the heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Do you see all those eyes there? Five eyes. Now, I, I want to give you an illustration, kind of just a picture of how that applies maybe more pragmatically, okay? I got a picture on the screen here. This is the solar system. And the illustration goes like this. Recognize that really when creation began, God was the sun. And he, creation was out there, and it was meant to orbit him. This is pre-fall. Adam and Eve were supposed to, to orbit around God. And God is the one who gives life and light. And matter of fact, even when you think of the sun, we, we see the sun, and you realize that even the sun that he's given us gives this earth light and life. But this is before sin. And, and all of a sudden, Satan comes along and says, I, 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 I want to be just like God. I want to be like that sun. And let me put the second picture on the screen there. So here Satan became the sun. And he worked to get legions and people to follow him and orbit around his world. And he did. It, it, it worked. And, and Satan created his own, in one sense, his own solar system. But in the temptation, as he came into the garden, he gave Adam and Eve a temptation. And here's a picture of that temptation. Third self. He said this, You can be like God, knowing good and evil. And, and here's the picture of it. The self becomes the sun. 
And we want to have people orbit around us. We want circumstances to, to fit into our being the sun. We demand that other people, and it might even be ourselves, worship ourselves. See, this is a picture of autonomy, self-rule, independence. Now let me connect this with a, a verse, Romans chapter 1. Understand the depth of this. As we created our own orbit, people orbiting around us, it says this in Romans 1.25, Paul writes, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. They worshipped and served the creature rather than God. And people began to worship self. And they began to believe that I don't really need God anymore. I'm going to claim independence. I'm going to claim self-rule. And you know what? And it really feels good to affirm that I should be the center of my own universe. I'll worship myself. And look for other people functionally to worship me. Think of a little child. If you have a little kids, they're born with this propensity to say, I want my world to orbit around me. When they're hungry, me. When they're dirty, me. Everything is around me. Look at verses 2 and 5. Let me put those on the screen from today. So here's as Jesus teaches, why? The motive. That they may be praised by others. That they may be seen by others. You see, people begin to believe a lie. That they need the praise of other people. And what is it doing? It's propping up the autonomy, the self-love. It's fueling their identity of who they are as a person. And at the heart of those phrases here in Matthew 6, the desire of the heart says this, I want to be noticed, I want to be admired, I want to be praised. And, and catch this, if our goal is to get applause and cheers and, and, the, and, and the, the claps of people's hands to, for us, there's a subtle point that he says. Look at in verse 2. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. The praise, the adulation, the, the awe becomes the reward. You catch that very subtle point. And here's, if one isn't self-aware, what happens? We never pause and then look at our motives. We can slide into a place in this temptation where we need it. And we don't even know that we're looking for it. But let me go down a path here. Just unpack this a little bit more. I, I believe this. We can actually create a parenting system of subtly teaching our children that praise is the real reward. And it can slide in, and it can actually feed their autonomy. See, we need to admit that at times praise and, and the applause is actually addicting, 
And it is very, very subtle. See, he's saying that, now, am I saying that praise is, is evil? The answer is no, I'm not saying that. But for these men to be noticed, there was a line that was crossed, a temptation that was given into, that said that my identity is built on what other people are thinking of me. I listened to a, a video seminar on, on worship here. It was a number of months ago. And the worship leader that was teaching this particular session, his name was Jesse, and, and he actually is a, played in Chris Tomlin's band and is, writes music with, uh, with Chris. And he's the worship pastor now at a large church in Texas. And at this conference, he, he challenged this group of worship pastors and warning them of the addiction of the green room. I don't know if you know that phrase, what the green room is. It's the place that after a concert or something where all of a sudden the the audience and the performer get together for autographs and and the connections there. And Jesse was warning this group of worship pastors, beware of the green room and the addiction of fame and success. But can't that start younger I think of children and, and, and growing up and you learn verses and you get a Sunday school teacher that, yay, Johnny, you learned the verse, or yay, you got the right answer. See, it can, if we're not careful, slowly it can move to a place where they're looking for the reward of praise and fame, even as a young child. But we do that in the adult world, promotions. Success, money. Uh, next couple of weeks, next week even, the temptation of money being a type of addiction as well. But see, we can be addicted to praise. And as I was pondering this, you know, God took me back actually to younger years where sports in many ways was an addiction to my life. You know, I didn't get affirmation from mom and dad, but you know what? I sure got it through sports. And the praise made me feel good. And Jesus is warning, be careful. There's a line. But the, the feelings of being all everything, all conference, all state, and people recruiting you and doing that kind of stuff, you understand it feeds into that addiction of wanting to where your identity is actually skewed. And we begin to think more highly than we ought. And applause is the reward. And even the trophies we get. Do you realize there's a place where just maybe those trophies are just a symbolization of praise? See, our identity becomes rooted in what people are saying about us. I feel good about myself if I'm praised by people. Or it might be even the opposite. My identity is worthless if I don't get praise from people. If I don't win, if I'm not smart enough, if not beautiful enough. And I think this, I think we can justify it. You know, I think I did. You know, went to church, went had a youth group, read my Bible a bit, did some witnessing, and I was all, you know, winning the, the games. Were, but the winning the games, it was more my identity than anything else. And even more subtly, parents, we can be buying into this. 
and realizing that my kids' praise feeds our need for praise. You have to think about that a moment. I don't have time to develop it, but we feel good about ourselves when our kids' success comes and they're praised. But let me push a hard truth here, number two, for your notes. Number two, unrighteousness, the opposite of what's right, seeks to impress people. You see, we love being the sun where where everything's orbiting around us. Now again, does this mean that praise is evil? No. And that I never should praise my children? No, I'm not saying that. But it forces us to stop and ask a very hard question if you're a parent. And the question is this, where is my child's identity really coming from? I don't believe that a lot of parents want to stop and ask that question. Because it's a hard one if we want to be really honest. But folks, here's the good news. This text gives us a different path. And let me show you what Jesus is trying to pull his disciples toward as he goes after their hearts. And it's so important on a spiritual level. Look at verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So here's the picture. Two hands. One is giving. And don't, he's saying, put something aside. You know how we can give and then, and then we'll do this. Hey, everybody, look at me. I'm giving. And he's going, no, put that aside. Work at this. I'm warning. This is where that warning comes in. Verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then verse 6, look at what it says. And when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Is this talking about not having public prayer? The answer is no. This is about our hearts and as to why and our understanding of who God is. See, it tells us here that proper motives, he's saying disciples, proper motives are connected to our Heavenly Father. Are we, are we catching something here? The issue of Father is critical to a proper understanding of righteousness and motives. Now let me point this idea of Father and why it's so critical. In verse 4, we just read, your Father. And in verse 6, twice, your Father. And in the next section, in verse 9, we won't re-go there, but our Father who art in heaven. Verse 14, your heavenly Father. In verse 15, your Father will forgive trespasses. Listen to verse 18. We could have lumped this, this section in with our text today. That if that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Same idea. Father, 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 Father. I guess nine times in the short passage that he brings out the concept of Father. Let me give you the truth for your notes. Number three, true righteousness looks to please our Heavenly Father. See, the natural man, the flesh, looks for the praise of people 
And one snippet to that, some of the people might be us, the individual. I look to praise myself. We have to realize that is a part of it. But love can begin to grow as we figure out what this Heavenly Father is like. Let me show you a quote from a commentary in the text this week that I found from Keener. It says this, True religion or true righteousness demands sufficient faith to settle for God's approval, to do what pleases Him, no matter what others may think. Now, what does this mean for discipleship and with families and with a church? And you go, what needs to change so we're not fueling the fire of needing the praise for our identity? Now, I recognize that you know my children were looking for mom and dad for praise. It's part of our propensity to do that. But what's Jesus saying here is that we must move and help even children and others believe with certainty that real life and meaning is found in our eternal Father. Dads, do you realize that our fatherhood basically stops when we die? It really doesn't matter into heaven. See, our primary role as a father is really handing our kids off to God. The picture is this, is we're trying, maybe this is a grandparent as well, is we're taking our children's hands and we're pulling them along and we're trying to connect them to the hands of the father. That's the picture, that's the role of a dad. To help our children know their heavenly father. Do we realize that our children really aren't here for our pleasure or our joy? It's a byproduct, but they really are here for God's pleasure and for his glory. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized? This this verse just came to my mind. God, out of heaven, speaks his voice. He says, this is my son whom I am well pleased. He was pleased with his son. See, do we really want that as parents to say, God, say that of my sons and my daughters, that you are well pleased. Now, now what does this communicate about God and about a heavenly father? I've got to give you a couple pieces here before we end. I think this more than whispers some things about him as, as father. And I think he's preparing his disciples actually to walk away from their families. And as they begin this new church and to make disciples, he's teaching them that their real father is in heaven. But number one, for your notes, I said it this way. Our heavenly father wants to be known by us personally. See, when we want to know someone, it it calls for face-to-face Do we believe that God longs to know us, for us to know him? He knows us intimately. But he desires for us to spend time knowing him, knowing his greatness, his creativeness, his justice, his mercy, his love. Now we recognize that God isn't visible. But maybe you caught a phrase that I think more than whispers something, and it's that phrase, in secret. God in secret 
Well, what is that? Yeah, we can't see him, but I think it's this. He's watching, and he's caring, and he's inviting. He wants to be with us. He wants us to know him. And we can get distracted by the stuff in the world. So go into a place and pray and be with your real father, your heavenly father. Look at verse 8, though. Or number 2. got to finish, give that one first. Number 2, we have a life-giving father. Do we believe that? But look how it works out in verse 8. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you even ask him. See, he wants us to be dependent on him. Rather than autonomy, self-rule, independence, he's going, I I want you to come to me and be dependent on me. I know your real needs. See, when God created, he gave life. Our Heavenly Father is a life giver. Do we know that? Do we feel it? And, And by the way, he gave us his most precious gift. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Our father is a life giver. And life is found in him. Why? Because he loves us and he cares for us. Do you feel it? Do you know it? Does it lead you to wanting to please him? Not because of his praise for you, but because you know him and you know his care for you. But there's a third point here as well that I think the text points out. Our Heavenly Father looks to reward us. Looks to reward us. There's a part of the giving a little more pointed. You see, people who look for praise and look for adoration and the clapping and the crowd, that's their reward. And he's saying it doesn't count. What you want is to be a place where God is actually rewarding us. And I think it happens, and we we don't have time to go down this path, but it's present, and it's also in the future. One day, the the scriptures are loud and clear in terms of giving us rewards toward the the future. But even now, when you think of just the, the reward of the satisfaction of knowing that God is with us, that he wants to share his love that he has with his son, He wants to share that now. The fact that we don't have to earn his love. We don't have to perform for him to get his love. It's wide and it's deep and it's broad. See, the reward that God is not distant, he's not slow to pay attention to us. He really cares. He's present. He's near. He's ready to encourage us as we step toward him. See, with a heavenly father like this, you you look and go, we're we're free to enjoy and to give and the freedom to love with abandon. And we can give so the father will give back to us what we need. See, he's willing to have our actions count and be worthy of reward from him. But, But here's kind of a question Do we want to settle for the praise of the crowd or ourself? Or are we going to move and say, my identity will be found in the Father? 
Let me put these last three options. I didn't put them on the the notes here. But just think of our identity. What he's trying to drill home the disciples here. Guys, righteousness is not found in people and performing. See, it's not determined by the praise of people. And that second one as well, it's, it's, I think some people fall this, it's determined by me believing that I'm worthwhile because I believe in myself. That's a praise of self in one sense. Now, do we want to believe in ourselves? Yeah, but ultimately it has to go to number three. That third point is determined by God as he communicates to us that we are beloved a son or a daughter whom he is well pleased there, there's this temptation for us to find our identity in a system where the world is orbiting around us. Or there's the beauty of this text is saying, find your identity around the Father. Orbit around the Father. Create a solar system where you're bowing before the Father. And you will find life. You will find meaning you'll find purpose, and none of that will be attractive. And we begin to worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's stand and pray.